Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Isaiah chapter 5 tonight, so you can turn to Revelation 14, and we will start there. I like the providence of God. I like the way messages seem to line up in ways that I could not have organized or orchestrated or predicted. But this last Sunday, we were talking about the definition of the gospel and the various different ways that the word gospel is used in the New Testament. And one of the places that we looked was chapter 14 of the book of Revelation, starting at verse 6, and the reference there to the everlasting gospel. Let's just read that section, and then we will discuss for a moment the everlasting gospel, and I will tell you how it ties into our teaching on Isaiah 5 tonight. I saw another angel flying in the mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs and the waters. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. When we read that on Sunday, I said, In what way is this preachment to the people of earth good news? Because it is a preachment of judgment against them with the declaration, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made everything, the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. In what way is that good news? And on Sunday I said, it's not particularly good news for the people who are still on the planet, because they are the ones who run for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth, and cry to the rocks and say, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. So it's not meant to be good news to the residents of the earth. And then I said, but it is very, very good news to the denizens of heaven, all of the redeemed, the angelic host. It is good news for them because they are seeing God do the very thing that God has said that he was going to do. From the very beginning, he told Adam and Eve that if they disobeyed, he would judge them. And then you see God pouring out judgment like the flood or the Tower of Babel. And then you see him tell Abraham 
that his descendants are going to go into a land where they're not known and they're going to serve there for 400 years and then be brought out with great substance and then come back to the land. On the way back to the land through Moses, they are given the law and the law includes here are my rules, here are my standards, here are my precepts. Do them and you'll live by them. Don't do them and I'll curse you and I will really curse you badly. And so God, who is faithful to his word, not only took the descendants of Abraham into Egypt where they served in bondage for 400 years, but then he faithfully took them into the promised land. And then when they rebelled, he also very faithfully brought about all the punishments that he told them he was going to pour out on them if they did not obey him. So even in judgment, God remains faithful to himself and faithful to his word. And therefore, God is glorifying himself in his own judgment. That is a characteristic of God that deserves worship, that deserves that people get down on their face in awe in front of him and fear him, reverence him, because he is the God of judgment who made everything and can do whatever he wants with the everything that he has made. Well, I put that definition out there on Sunday, slightly shorter version of it on Sunday, but I put it out there on Sunday without explaining where I got that thinking from. Well, that thinking comes directly from what we're about to read in Isaiah 5. So turn to Isaiah 5 with that bit of introduction out of the way. And when you get to Isaiah 5, turn to verse 16. The entirety of chapter 5 is about God judging Judah and predicting the onslaught to come. God is going to bring the Babylonians down on them, and he is going to punish them severely for their lack of following his law, his rules, his standards, even his Sabbaths. The reason that they're going to remain for 70 years in Babylon, one of the reasons God declares is so that the land can enjoy its Sabbaths because the Israelites were not giving the land its year off that the land deserved because the land belonged to God and God was going to give it its rest every seven years as well. So the entirety of this chapter is just bad news, bad news, bad news. By the time we're done reading it tonight, you're just going to, be, you're going to be very, very grateful that you weren't living in Judah just before the Babylonian captivity because it's just nothing but bad news. And yet in the middle of the chapter, in verse 16, we read, But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment. The Lord of hosts, the same phraseology that Isaiah has been using continually to describe what God he's talking about. He's not only the God who made heaven and earth, but he is the Lord God Sabaoth. He is the one who is in charge of the armies of heaven. He's the one who is in charge of all the inhabitants of the earth, all the denizens of hell. Everything that was ever made, everybody that was ever created, they all ultimately have to bow to his will and his determination, his judgment. And the fact that he is a judge is one of the demonstrations of his absolute sovereignty as the maker of everything. And therefore, when he judges, he is exalting himself because he is demonstrating the kind of God he is. 
not only as the sovereign Lord of everything, but as a holy God. And as a holy and righteous God, he can judge righteously. None of us are allowed to pour out our judgment. We're told not to seek our own revenge, not to seek our own vengeance, but to leave it up to God because God said he would recompense. We're supposed to be leaving the whole judgment thing up to God because God is the only personality in all of creation who can actually judge righteously. We, if we were to judge, if we were to pour out our judgments, we would do it according to our ego. We would do it according to our pride and our sinfulness. We would do it according to what benefits us. But God is the standard for righteousness and holiness. And therefore, when he judges, it is another way that he is exalting himself. Because, as I keep saying, God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And therefore, everything he does, whether that is saving somebody or whether that is heaping out punishment on his enemies. He is still glorifying himself. He's still lifting himself up. That's what that word exalted means. He is still exalting himself. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Seems almost redundant. The holy God is going to demonstrate his holiness by the way that he demonstrates his righteousness in the way that he hands out judgment. And all of that is a demonstration of who he is, what he is like, how superior he is to everyone and everything, and therefore he is lifting himself up and exalting himself because he's the only one who deserves to be glorified, who deserves our worship, and I really do think the more we understand that that's the God of the Bible, the more prone we are to get on our faces in front of him and admit that he is holy and that he is righteous. Not only is that an inspiration for everything we've been talking about on Sunday mornings as far as being a Christian, as far as walking out our Christian life, because after all, God is righteous and holy, but even on Mars Hill, when Paul preached him, he preached him as a judge. That God has set a day by which he was going to judge everybody through Jesus Christ. And that was part of the story of Jesus as much as the, he's the savior of the world is a part of the story of Jesus. He is the savior sent by God to pay for the sins of his people. That's part of the story. But he's also the righteous judge who's going to sit on the throne of judgment. And he himself, when talking to the Pharisees, said to them, what are you going to do when you see me sitting on the white throne? What are you going to do when you see me coming in judgment? So judgment is as much a part of the holy, righteous standard and demonstration of God as salvation is. We, among the saved, we're certainly grateful that God is long-suffering and gracious and that he does save people. But I believe when we get there, we're going to be caught up in the worship of God as he pours out judgment on the sinful planet 
on his enemies. We're going to be right there with the rest of the angelic host saying, you go, God. Amen. You, you go. You get it. You do everything that you're going to do because you're God and you are exalting yourself in the doing of it. And that, without putting over much stress on it, if I haven't already, that is the God of the Bible that we find demonstrated in passages like Isaiah 5 where God is telling them in advance, this is what I'm going to do to you. This is the punishment I'm going to pour out on you. If you don't repent, if you don't change, if you don't start following my law, which he knew they weren't going to, I'm going to pour out all this judgment on you because I told you in the covenant where I gave you my law that if you didn't perform it, I'd pour out judgment. You didn't do it. Here comes the judgment. That is all part of God exalting himself. Make sense? Yes. And hopefully... By having a few minutes to think about that, it sort of raised the standard in your mind of who God is and what God's like and why you ought to worship him. Last week, we read the beginning of chapter 5, the parable of the vineyard. So I won't comment on it. We'll just read through it again because this is the beginning of God explaining what the punishment is going to be, and why Judah deserves it. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around. He removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. You know, the chief reason that Israel could sit there, and this is true to this very, very day, the reason that Israel sits where it does, where it's got the Mediterranean on one side and enemies on every other side, Egypt to the south and Iraq and Iran to the east and Turkey to the north and surrounded by Muslim countries who want to blow Israel off the map. The only reason it's still there, the only reason it stands is the same reason that God gives here. God built a hedge around it. God protects it. And then he says, I'm going to remove the hedge. And that's the only reason that the Babylonians are going to be able to overthrow it when the Assyrians could not. The Assyrians took the northern ten tribes, but they couldn't get Judah. God continued to protect them. Now he's saying, I'm going to drop that hedge, and they're going to come and remove you. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground, and I will lay it waste. 
It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up, and I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Okay, so if the, if the soil itself completely goes bad and nobody prunes it or puts a hoe to it and overturns the ground, and then the briars and the thorns come up to choke away the fruit, and there's no water. What kind of grapes are you going to get after that? What kind of vines are you going to grow after that? Obviously, there's going to be no vineyard at all. And that's what God is describing. I'm going to trample it down. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. In other words, the poor, as you're going to see in a moment, the oppressed had nowhere else to go as the high and mighty, as the wealthy in Israel continued to oppress the poor in Israel they would then cry out to God, and God was hearing the constant, unending cries of unrighteousness coming up from his people. He expected righteousness out of the nation, fairness, taking care of one another, and instead what he got was this cry to his ears constantly of the distress of the nation. So verse 8 then says, Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room. What that means is the rich, the powerful, would keep the poor so indebted that they would end up putting up their house, their land, their inheritance, just to try to pay their debt. And so the ones who already had a house would end up owning their neighbor's house and the house next to that. Or the field, they would already have their own land, their own land allotment given to them by God, and yet they would accumulate to themselves more land. And they would continue to oppress the poor so that they end up living all by themselves in the midst of all these homes and all this land. They have all this stuff, and they're the only one in it, while there's all these people who need homes and lands who have been cast out of their homes and lands. And so God starts by saying, woe to you for acting like that. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears, the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall become desolate even great and fine ones without occupants. That happened. When the Babylonian captivity began, the first deportation was all of the high and mighty, all the people who were something. So all their luxurious houses and all the houses they stole from the poor ended up vacant. When they did possess it, when they did possess large swaths of land, They were the only one in the middle of it. They were the only one living in it, which is why God said, so that you'll be living alone in the midst of the land. And so God said, the time's coming when many houses are going to be desolate, even the great ones, even the fine ones. Your great house isn't going to be any protection when I bring Babylon against you. 
Even great and fine ones will be without occupant. And then he's going to destroy the agriculture so that even if they were to remain, as some did, if they were to remain in Israel, they're going to starve. For 10 acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine, and a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain. Now, your different translations may tell you how much that is. The NASB says that's approximately 10 and a half gallons. If you had 10 acres of vineyard, and you've put the time into cultivating that vineyard and you've taken the time to water it and you've taken the time to take care of it and keep the weeds away from it and finally it comes up, you're expecting, well, okay, now there's going to be plentiful grapes and I'm going to end up with plenty of wine for the rest of the year. If you only ended up with 10 gallons after that, it'd be like, well, that wasn't worth it. I put more effort into it than what I actually got out of it. That's what God is trying to describe. Even if you have acres devoted to your vineyards, I'm going to make sure that, your, that the fruit of your vineyard is so bad that you don't get any wine from it. It's not going to yield anything good. After all, my vineyard has not yielded anything good for me. And a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain. The NASB again says approximately one bushel. All you really need to know is that a homer is several ephahs. And so if you have several homers of grain and you plant it in the ground and you water it and you take care of it and you turn the soil and you've done all the hard work and then the amount of actual grain that you get that you can eat as a result of that is maybe a tenth of what you put into it. But what good was that? It's real easy to describe. If you have a bushel basket that people cannot see on the internet, that I am sort of making a size comparison with my hands. But if you have an entire bushel basket of seed and you put it into the ground and the end result at the harvest is that you get one cup full of grain, well, then you did something terribly wrong. Something went horribly wrong. The famine is coming. That's what's being described. For 10 acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine, and a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Who has that kind of time? Well, the wealthy do. People who are sitting at ease, people who are comfortable, they're able to have wine at night and then rise up early and start with their strong drink, keeping themselves drunk all the time because they don't really have to work and they don't have any necessities on their days. And God again says, woe to you if you live that kind of luxurious life. Now he's going to describe the kind of luxury he's talking about. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute and by wine they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. This is not unique to the day and age in which Isaiah was living. It's true of the entire history of Israel. As you look at the history of Israel, 
whenever they got in trouble, they would cry out to the Lord, and then God would deliver them. He would send them a judge. He would send them a hero, and they would be delivered from the hand of their enemies. And then they were pretty good about worshiping God after that deliverance, but then the next generation would come along, and they would kind of forget what their forebears went through. And usually by the third generation, they had completely forgotten about God again because they were fat and happy, because everything was good again, because they had plentiful food and they had wine and they had riches and luxury life. And so they forgot about God because it is just true of human beings that whenever we have plenty, whenever we have enough, whenever life is good, whenever everything is going our way, we don't tend to call on God because, well, it's all good. So we don't usually take the time to go back and say thank you. We don't take the time to get on our face and recognize that the God of everything is the one who provided all this. Instead, we end up thinking self-made man. And we start saying, I have all this because I worked for it. I did the necessary deeds in order to get all this that's why God said they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord. God is doing what God is doing. God is the one who provided for you. And so then God has to punish them again. He has to teach them something again. And so the history of Israel is after a couple of generations, after they're fat and happy again, then their enemies are brought down on them to correct them again. And then they cry out to God again because it is just a basic reality of human beings that we don't cry out to God unless we're in trouble. And God knows that. Micah knows that. We all in this room know that. We all know that that's the way human beings are hardwired. When trouble comes, that's when we cry out to God. But then once we're comfortable again, that is the history of America. I know I've used this example a few times, but it fits here so very well. After 9-11, after we were attacked, we became a very publicly God-fearing somewhat Christian nation. We were having televised church services and you had everybody from Congress standing on the steps of Congress singing, God bless America. And we came crying to God. Okay, so it's not even 20 years now. It's just 19 years. Where is God in the common marketplace in America today? You can't even talk about him on TV. If you're being interviewed, I've seen it so many times, a Christian person being interviewed will bring up God and they'll just stop the interview and shut off the cameras and just, God isn't even part of our regular, everyday American conversation. Why? Well, because things are going good. So what we're reading here in Isaiah is no different than what we're seeing in our own world is all I'm saying. And the way that we in the Western world are continuing to suppress the word of God in unrighteousness. We're just begging for an event like what we're about to read. We're begging for another 9-11. We're just begging for the judgment of God. And then God is going to judge again because that's when people are going to get on their knees and cry out to him again. And he knows that. He knows that's what it takes. You would think that at some point smart people would go, you know what we ought to do? Since everything's going well, maybe we should worship God as a nation because he's been really good to us. 
but the one thing we've learned from history is that we've learned nothing from history. Yeah, we don't know. So, therefore, because they don't consider the deeds of the Lord, because they don't consider the work of his hands, therefore my people will go into exile for their lack of knowledge. And they're honorable men. That means they're rich men. The leading men of the society. Their honorable men are going to be famished because of the famine that's coming and their multitude will be parched with thirst. And therefore, here's a dark phrase, and therefore Sheol, the grave, has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. We read that in the Proverbs. One of the things that is never satisfied is Sheol. There's no point at which the grave is going to say, okay, that's enough, we're full now. Death is just going to keep coming, and bodies are going to keep going to the grave, and Sheol is going to enlarge its throat and swallow them. Sheol, the grave, has opened its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her will descend into it into Sheol, into the grave. So God is describing how he's going to take Jerusalem down. There's going to be a massive amount of death. Even the important men are going to be taken down into the grave. And all the revelry, all the jubilance, all the happiness that was going on in Jerusalem is going to cease. It's all going down to the grave because they're going into exile where they're going to serve as slaves. So, common man will be humbled, and the man of importance will be abased. The eyes of the proud will also be abased. How often now, just in generally reading the Bible, any part of the Bible, pick any part of the Bible, just drop the Bible and let it open to any page, how often have we seen these references time and time again to God humbling the proud? You would think at some point we'd figure it out and realize that God just is very opposed to our pride, our ego, our self-sufficiency. And here it is again. The eyes of the proud also will be abased. But by contrast to the destruction and the abasement of proud humans, verse 16, but the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment. And the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. That's where that verse fits. So there's no question that the context is all about horrific judgment. There's no question that God has laid out his case against Judah and Jerusalem, and now he is pouring out righteous judgment on them that they deserve and by way of contrast to their abasement, to their destruction, to their going down into the grave in massive numbers, the contrast is the Lord of hosts who's lifted up. He's exalted through this judgment. And the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. And then the land's just going to be desolate. Verse 17 says, then the lambs will graze in their pasture. That verse, taken out of context, 
if we think of the word lambs always as, oh, those are the little ones that Jesus carries on his shoulders, then that sounds like a very positive phrase, but it's not when you look at it contextually. It means that Jerusalem is going to be so such a waste that there's just going to be creatures grazing on it as if they were grazing in their own pasture. And the lambs will graze as in their pasture, and strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy. Okay, that's the context. Now you know that lambs thing can't be a positive. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. What a description of human beings. Woe to those. And whenever God says woe, that's never good news. Woe to those That word drag iniquity means you drag iniquity, you drag sinfulness along with you wherever you go with the cords of falsehood. It's like you take all your sinful proclivities, you've bound them all up with a rope, and wherever you go, you drag it along with you. You drag your sin like you're dragging it with cart ropes. So you keep all of your evil proclivities and you keep all your sinfulness and your depravity in a big cart and everywhere you go, you wrap ropes around your, your midsection and around your shoulders because it's so heavy and you drag it behind you everywhere you go because your sin weighs you down to that degree but you won't let it go. You'll still put all the effort you have to put into in order to drag your sin with you. Verse 19, people who do that say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. So in other words, at the very same time that these people are dragging their iniquity and are nothing but guilty before God, They're busy claiming that they want to see God do it. Okay, do all that stuff you said you were going to do. Protect us and make us terrifically wealthy. And you've you've already told us that David's greater son is coming and we're going to be a nation like no other nation. And all the Gentile nations are going to come to us. Okay, we want to see the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near. We want the benefits. We want to see him do it with our own eyes. Then maybe we'll worship him for doing it. But we're not going to give up our sin. We're not going to give up on our ego. We're not going to give up on our daily and nightly revelry and our regular drinking. We're not going to give up on our sumptuous living. We don't want to sacrifice anything. We just want to see God show off. We just want to see God do the things he said he was going to do regardless of us. No matter how we live, we just want to see God do it. So woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes who say, let him make speed and let him hasten his work that we may see it and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Woe to the ones who call evil good and good evil. That's everything he's been describing. The law, as Paul tells us, the law is good. The law is righteous and holy. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's the law of God. 
the problem is with us we have the inability to do it and yet who do we blame who did Israel blame who did Judah blame for their inability to live up to the law of God they blame the law of God it was too hard it's too stringent we can't do it I know you said that we ought to take care of each other and we ought to be fair but I I'm wealthy I'm a self-made man. I have the ability to heap houses to myself and cast the poor into the streets. I don't want to do that law thing. Well, what is that? That is saying that something that is really good, the law is really good, and yet they would call it evil. And their evil, egocentric, prideful, sumptuous living, which is evil, they would call good. So this is a perfect description not only of the people of Judah in Isaiah's day, but it sure does describe human beings. I'm willing to say that so much of what we see on the internet these days that is anti-God and anti-Christian engages in calling something that's good evil. And then they advance truly, genuinely evil things and call it good. Here, I'll give you just a quick example. This is just so easy. You could think of five examples without even trying. But oh, let's just throw abortion out there. Good? No. No, not good. No. Murder of babies? No. On a national scale? In the numbers of millions? Good? No. Do we call it good? Yeah. Nationally, we say it's good. Yeah. In fact, we elect candidates based on whether they're going to be pro-abortion or not. Okay, well, that would be calling evil good and good evil. Church, good thing? Yes. Good thing. Yeah, good thing. That's a good thing. People getting together in churches, worshiping God, good thing. It's good for the society. It's just generally good for people. It's a good thing. The government, especially in the state of California right now, continues to oppose people getting together in church. Is that a good thing? No, that's an evil thing. So they are calling good evil. And they are calling evil good. And look how easy it was to just give you those two examples. They're just so prevalent. It's just so obvious. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness if you didn't understand those two examples how about this one who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter in all three of those examples it's taking opposite things one that is good and positive one that is sinful and evil and confusing the two and not understanding the categories of what is positive and what is negative and purposefully confusing them, usually so that you can excuse your own conscience. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. We're back to pride again. Woe to those who are calling good evil and evil good because they think they're the arbiters of what good and evil is. By the way, that takes you all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What was the promise that Satan made to Eve in order to encourage her to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You're going to know. You're going to know what's good and what's evil. 
God knows the day you eat of it, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. And so they ate of it. And, of course, they didn't realize they were good as a result. Once they knew good and evil, the first thing they knew about themselves was that they were not good, which is why they sewed up fig leaves and realized they were naked and ran and hid from God. So Satan has been keeping this lie alive for a very long time. That you, as the individual, have the individual right to determine for yourself what's good and evil, so that you are wise in your own eyes, so that you can excuse your own choices and behavior. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That's how pernicious that lie is, when in fact the only way that you can know what actual genuine good is, is for God to tell you, because he's the only one who is good. And you are born into your sinfulness and into your depravity. And left to yourself, you would do nothing but evil. And the only way you're going to know what good is, is for God to tell you what's good. And he told Israel what was good. Here's my law. That's why there's 613 ordinances in it. Here, I'm going to tell you what good looks like in a theocratic society. This is what it looks like. They decided, since they were wise in their own eyes, you know... I think we'll make our own rules. Yeah, okay, there's that God thing, but also some of those rules, I just don't like them, and I individually will decide for myself whether I'm going to do them. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever. To be clever in their own sight, to be wise in their own sight, to be self-determined in their own mind. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine. These days, you really don't have to do much to be called a hero. The folks on the left will line up to call you a hero if you do something that you really deserve a participation trophy for. Well, that's nothing new. God back here used it as a mocking phrase. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine, in something really destructive. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. That's the one characteristic that you're really, really good at. Drinking wine and mixed drinks and staying drunk. Yay for you who justify the wicked for a bribe. Now you can get some sense of why, as we were reading through the Proverbs, the question of bribery came up so often. If you're justifying someone who has done a wicked thing, someone who has stolen land or stolen houses or stolen a vineyard for somebody else, but then you don't adjudicate it properly on behalf of the poor person because the rich person can actually do something for you, well, he says, woe to you, because that's not justice. You justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. The person who has had the land stolen from them is in the right, and yet that's not who you defend. You end up taking away their rights. Therefore, therefore, because of all this, because of everything he's been laying out so far, because of his demonstration of how guilty they are, now he's going to start describing what he's going to do when he brings the Babylonian army down on them. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses in flame, so their root will become rot and the blossom 
of their flower will blow away as dust. In other words, all the things that make them attractive are going to be destroyed. And the same way that dry grass, all it takes is a spark. All it takes is one match and you can burn an entire field. That's how he describes Jerusalem. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes the stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. There's the charge right there. That's why he's doing it, because they have rejected the law of God and they have despised, not just rejected it, but did it with prejudice, put it off and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Why, why, oh why, do human beings to this very day reject the holiness of God? Because all the way through the Bible, he's described to us as being absolutely righteous and absolutely holy, and yet to this very moment, as I live and breathe and talk at this moment, there are people on the planet who absolutely hate the holiness of God. Why do human beings hate the holiness of God? Because they're not holy. And because they're not holy, rather than repent and beg God for forgiveness, they try to bring God down. They try to eliminate his holiness because they recognize innately inside them that if God exists and if he is righteous and if he is holy and if he is a judge, then they are in terrible trouble. So they fool themselves by convincing themselves that he's not really either there or that he's not really holy or that he's not really a judge and they end up despising the genuine, righteous, holy judgment of God because of their own sinfulness, their own ego, and the intrinsic fear that comes when you stand toe-to-toe with what the Bible actually says about your depravity and God's absolute holiness. So they hate it. On this account, says verse 25, because of this, on this account the anger of the Lord has burned against his people. It's interesting how often he has used the language of burning. Because when Babylon comes in, they're going to burn. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people. And he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. In other words, God knows full well these people, these people who he has chosen as a nation, having rejected him, having refused to do his law, having hated his holiness, he's going to strew their bones and their corpses through the streets of Jerusalem to demonstrate to them the contrast between what was once a shining jewel of a city that had plenty, the land of milk and honey, And he's going to reduce them to the place where like rubble, like heaps, the corpses of the dead are just going to lay in the streets. It doesn't get much more corrupted than that. For all this, his anger is not spent. Wow. God, 
because he is an infinite God, is infinitely good and infinitely righteous. He is infinitely gracious and to his own infinitely long-suffering. He is an infinite God who has the characteristic of infinity to everything he is and everything he does. But that also means that when his anger is stirred up, that anger is always with him and in him. That is intrinsic to who he is. It's part of his character and nature as a judge. And that anger is an infinite nature. And so there's really no way to exhaust the anger of God. You would think after you saw something as horrific as what Babylon did to Jerusalem, you would think, okay, God must finally be satisfied now because he's, he's really punished them now. But that wasn't it. 70 AD still came along. Hitler still came along. And to this very day, Jerusalem is still in danger of being blown off the map by their enemies. The anger of God against them continues. And by the way, it's going to continue until they repent and turn back to him, which, by the way, is also promised in the book of Isaiah, that God is going to turn them. He's going to give them a new heart. He's going to put his spirit in them, and it's going to be like a nation born in a day. They're going to weep over the one that they have pierced. They're going to recognize their Savior and their Messiah, and they're going to be restored to the kingdom, to the glorious kingdom that they have been promised. So the infinite grace of God, and this is really good news, for his own people, the infinite grace of God wins out over his infinite anger. It's really great. For all this, his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out, which means he's still going to pour out punishment. He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation. That's a reference now to Babylon. Lifting up the standard is how you collect the army. And he will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. What interesting phraseology. How do you attract an animal or call an animal? You whistle for him. God says, I'm going to whistle for the armies of Babylon. They don't even know me. They're not my people. They're not my chosen. But I'm going to raise my standard and I'm going to whistle for them. And they're going to come and behold, it is going to come with speed swiftly. You would think that either the word swiftly or the phrase with speed would be adequate. But no, God says they're going to come fast. And they did. Babylon came on Jerusalem with such force, with such ferocity, that there was nothing they could do about it. The armies of Babylon were so organized that God describes it as, verse 27, and no one in it is weary or stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, nor is the belt of its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp and all its bows are bent, the hoofs of its horses seem like flint, and its chariot wheels are like whirlwinds. Its roaring is like a lioness, and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it. And it shall growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress, and even the light is darkened by the clouds. 
So that's the kind of language God pours out when he says, okay, I'm going to bring a foreign army, a foreign nation, your enemy. I'm going to bring them down on you to correct you again, yet again. This is the history of Israel. This is what they keep doing. And God keeps punishing them. And the punishments continue to be more and more extreme. Now, one more aspect of Jerusalem and Judah that I want you to hold on to is that Christ is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah because all the way back when Jacob leaned on his staff and gave blessings to his sons, after he said that the the land promise, the right of the firstborn, actually belonged to Ephraim, the elder son of Joseph, he then said that law-giving was not going to depart from Judah. He separated the tribe of Judah to say that Shiloh, Messiah, was coming through Judah. And any thoroughgoing Jew who knew that promise would know that God was going to keep Judah. They were going to have to remain intact until Messiah came. Once Messiah came and then died around 30 to 32 AD somewhere, and 70 AD in the destruction of Jerusalem again. But it has to remain intact, which is why after the Babylonian captivity, we've already read Nehemiah, we've already read Ezra. We know the end of the story, which is after 70 years, after Daniel's been praying, God, just make it 70 years, like Jeremiah said it was going to be, that God then raises up a king, who conquers Babylon, who then lets the Jews go back and rebuild their walls and rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. And once again, Jerusalem exists on planet Earth, one of the few times that a people group with a significant city had it destroyed and they were driven out of it and then they were allowed to go back to it and rebuild it and it existed again. That's really unique in the annals of history, but it's because God who owns history, who's in charge of history, also has already said how the Messiah is going to come. He's going to come through Judah in particular. Therefore, the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem have to remain so that Jesus can walk on the planet and then say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets. He has to be able to one more time declare the guilt of Judah collectively for the death of all the prophets that were sent by God. So God has to keep Judah intact, not only so that Messiah can come, who is the savior of all those who God has chosen since before the foundation of the world, but he is also the judge, and whether in salvation or whether in judgment, he is still exalting God. Got it? Get the big picture. It's, it's magnificent. It's, it's just, it's great and eternal and really far beyond our little human imaginations to understand. But we're right in the middle right now, just watching God continue to control history to bring it to the end that he has determined for it. And it's exciting. Next week, 
We will start with that very well-known phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died. We'll have to talk a little bit about Uzziah and why that was a significant death outside of the fact that it's also a date stamp. And then God is going to show up to Isaiah and we're really going to get a glimpse at the magnificence of the God we've been talking about. My ride's here. <laughs> so we have to go. Any questions? All right. Not as much a question as an observation. Um, you started the evening by referencing Revelation, and I just, I think you used the word to um, try to lift the standard or raise the standard, I think is what you said, for us to uh, try to understand. Uh, God's judgment as we come into the text line, yeah. to, to understand that God's judgment is also part of his glorification of himself right and that we we just we don't raise to that level naturally so it's kind of like a, a prep work you're trying to do for yeah. that in that and, and, and that's so true because I mean none of us have ever been you know guilty of having too high of a standard of, of God or too too much of a grasp of his holiness we're always well and I also that. think if I can interrupt you for a second I also think that we have this faulty notion that there are aspects of God that are good and aspects of God that are bad. And we would say, well, salvation, good, but judgment, ah, not so good. You know, judgment, oh, you know, that's, that's the bad God. That's the mean God. That's why through the years some people have said that the God of the Old Testament is the angry, mean God. And then Jesus comes in the New Testament and he's the, the kind and gracious God who makes it okay. But he's not the mean God of the Old Testament. He's the righteous, holy God of the Old Testament. And when he saves, that's part of his good character. And when he judges, that's part of his good character because he judges in holy righteousness. So it's all good. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. And that, just that point is kind of like just illustrating the problem of our inability to comprehend that, you know, the, the, the judgment, like you say, that's all part of his holiness, so we can't, we can't quite comprehend it, and, and then the other one that you were drawn on was uh, how you referenced you know, Israel and how they got fat crappy, like you were saying, and then they needed judgment to try to bring them back to God, so there's the problem of consistency, so it's not only, you know, the problem of not, not fully comprehending who God is, but with what we do, we're inconsistent with it as well, and it really paints a pretty pathetic picture. Yeah, it's a bleak, isn't it? Right. right. Yeah. <clears throat> because right now, as we were reading his word, I hope that there was some part of your mind that was imagining it and expanding on it and, and convicting you by it, and that you were feeling some sense of how really glorious God is for these few minutes that we were together reading his word and talking about God. And so for those few minutes, you kind of, your brain kind of tunes in to, wow, yeah, and tune into his word, and wow, how majestic, and wow, the glory of God. And then tomorrow, no, today, when, walk out the today, when you walk out the door, yeah, you're going to go back to your life, and you, it's just so easy to forget because all of this physical, human, sinful stuff we're involved in uh, just erases those things that are just so wonderful to really hold on to. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
it's so true, and we say it when we repeat it, but it's it's really a very palpable. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it is palpable. Yeah. It's true. So really, how pathetic are we? How patient is God? How patient is God that he's willing to put up with us despite our inability? But then I just love the fact that the Bible also says that he pities us because he knows we're just dust. And thank God for that pity. That's why he had to send us a high priest who knew the infirmities of our flesh. Intercession. Yeah. The Holy Spirit interceding us for us because we don't know how to pray. Because we don't know. We can't do any of it. <laughs> yeah. So you can see why being proud, being arrogant before God mm-hmm. is just so offensive to him because of how really stupid we are how incapable we are and then we get you know full of ourselves and think that we're going to decide what God can and cannot do and whether we're going to worship him or not you can see why our arrogance is so offensive to him it's why it comes up so often it's nice how the Bible all fits together Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God. <laughs>